So I had a really life-changing revelation from God this week. Here's, here's what God showed me. Potluck suppers are actually biblical. Is this exciting news or what? I mean, this, this is big stuff. I mean, this is life-changing stuff. Now, one day we are actually going to be able to do this again, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, but in studying through our passage in 1 Corinthians 11 today, I'm really serious about that. I mean, that really kind of is what was taking place in the early church as they were gathering together for communion. Uh, they were having potluck meals. Now, potluck meals are exciting, but for some, especially those that have the gift of hospitality, such as my dear sweet wife, Sean, they can be very stressful because she always worries when we have a potluck meal about everybody having enough food. Right? That's always at the top of the list. And so every time she will you know, set out a sign-up sheet to make sure that the appropriate number of things in each category are being brought. And so our Connect group, will, you know, we used to do the potluck meals fairly regularly. And just to mess with her one time, she actually wasn't feeling well one day. It was in the back room. We had our sign-up list. And like all 12 different people or families or whatever all signed up for desserts, you know, just to kind of mess with her and see how she would respond. And it took her a minute to catch on that this was just a joke. But then when we didn't sign up, and I don't remember if it was that time or another one, we didn't sign up, actually her worst nightmare happened. And that was that there weren't enough main course dishes. You know, everybody showed up and we were heavy on one and not on the other. And, and I didn't think you were going to make it through the night. But somehow she made it through the evening and survived. Uh, but it was a very, very stressful thing. You know, I, I, I think about that and I laugh a little bit about that. But there's some similarity to that, to what was going on in the early church. And so we're going to jump in and continue in our passage in 1 Corinthians 11 today. We're going to see that uh, the people came together, the church came together for a meal. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper, but there was a problem. There was a significant problem, in fact, you'll see as we read this. This isn't just a minor issue. This was a big deal. Let's read about it, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. And the following direct is, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Man, that's a strong statement. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Since then, you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. What if someone were to write a letter to our church saying, that something that you are doing as a church is actually causing more harm than good. And if this was somebody who was highly respected, like an Apostle Paul type figure, I mean, that would get your attention, right? You would think, what in the world are we doing that is creating more problem than, than, than it's doing good? Well, let's talk about that for a minute because we need to understand a little bit of the context and what was going on in this time. When they had what we would call communion or Lord's Supper together, it was actually literally a meal. They, they would gather together on Sunday evening and the church would have a meal together. And then as part of that meal, they would break the bread and, and, and drink from the cup and they would remember the body and the blood of the Lord. But this was an actual physical meal that they shared together. Now, the way this is supposed to work was that everybody would bring what they could to the meal. So those 
who um, were, had, had greater means available to them might bring a little bit extra. Those who didn't have as much maybe would bring a little bit less. But the food would be divided out because that's what you do in a potluck meal, right? You divide it out and everybody has enough to eat. And so the goal of this, one of the primary things that should happen in the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is that it brings the body of Christ together and it creates unity and it puts everybody on equal footing. Now certainly at this time in this culture, um, that was not the case. And, you know, probably still isn't today. Maybe more exaggerated than those who were wealthy were expected to eat finer foods, to have more of it. They were expected to flaunt it a little bit and let everybody know that they were who they were and that they had more than everybody else. And so what was taking place in the church when it says that you're coming together and some of you are going ahead and you're eating and, and, and you're not waiting on the others. In other words, you're not allowing the people to, to have what they need and it was just continuing. See, what they were doing was no different from what everybody did in that culture. But that's the problem. The church is supposed to look different. And they were just operating by the, the same kind of cultural norms that everybody else did. And he says this, this is a significant problem here because the goal and one of the primary goals in, in coming together for this meal was that it would create unity and it would put everybody on level ground. So there's no hierarchy, which is one of the cool things, by the way, of the church. When the church gathers together, we have people you know, that are CEOs of, of major companies and, and, and those that, you know, are of less means than that. But it doesn't matter because everybody comes together. That's the whole point, And that's the way it's designed to work. And so that wasn't happening here. We see in chapter 10, if you go back just one chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says this. It says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Okay, so you get this idea that the bread, communion, it's oneness. We're all to be together as one. And so this was a big deal for them. But verse 22, listen to what verse 22 says, the second part of that. Because of what they were doing, it says, Do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? And so now those who didn't have, rather than being provided for, rather than being loved by their brothers and sisters in Christ, they were being humiliated because there was this separation and it was very obvious that they didn't have. And so uh, here's, here's really the, the, the first main idea today is this, that the Lord's Supper should draw us close together. That's one of the main purposes of, of, of communion, is it draws the body of Christ together. It reminds us that we are this one love, that we have oneness in Christ. And it's such, you know, it's, it, it stings, I think, even more when you consider that those within the church here who had the means to be able to create and help, help foster this sense of community and oneness, they had the ability to do that, but they were actually using their means for something very destructive. And so that was the problem. It was intended and should still be intended to draw us together. And I got to tell you, as I, as I read Scripture, here's, here's what I do. I always, you know, or just what, at least what I attempt to do is read it and say, okay, what is going on at this time? What did it mean to them at that time? Because one of the things I said last week, the Bible doesn't mean today what it didn't mean then. So we have to be very careful about, you know, placing our uh, perspective on things. What did it mean then? But then, but then the second, another question is, okay, what's the application for us? What does this look like for us today? So if what it meant then was that the body of Christ should come together, that there should be oneness, that there should be equality within the body, 
What does that look like? How do we use communion today to make that happen? And I got to tell you, this is one that I struggle with a little bit. And I'm still kind of wrestling through that because our, our dynamic is a little different. Rather than a church you know, being a smaller group meeting in homes, you know, it's, it's now larger groups coming together for worship like this. I mean, put, even put COVID aside. Obviously, we can't do certain things now just because of COVID. But even before that, putting that aside... How do we go about creating this sense of oneness in the body of Christ as we celebrate communion together? And, you know, one of the things that, that could happen is to do this in smaller settings. Those of you that are connect group leaders, I want to encourage you to think through that. What would that look like for you and your connect group? Maybe to have a meal together when we do get back to being able to do those kinds of things. But, you know, a, a potluck, a meal, a sharing together, and then incorporating the elements of communion together in that context. That's something, maybe a, a, a way to apply that. Um, but here, the, the biggest point or the biggest thing is bringing oneness. And you've heard me say this several times over the last several months. One of the things that just grieves me so much is when I see the division that comes really in our country in general but that can even work its way into the body of Christ. And anytime there are divisions, and, and we live in a society right now where we are probably more divided, in my opinion, than we've, we've ever been, certainly in my lifetime. And we're told that you have to choose sides. You know, you have to be on this side or the other side. And, and not only do you have to choose sides, but you choose sides, and then everyone on the other side becomes the enemy. And if you don't agree with me, then, you know, you're the idiot and I'm not going to speak to you. And I mean, it's really a problem. And it's even a bigger problem that a lot of times that same sense of, of division and, you know, choosing sides can, can work its way into the church. And so there's a lot of application here for this. And, and so you know, when we look at a passage like this and we see that there was division coming into the body through communion, one of the things I think we have to ask is how do we keep that from happening? Certainly, communion, we'll talk about that in a minute, and we'll go through that together here in a little bit, but, but, but what are the things that can bring division among the body? You know, we, have a, we didn't plan this, we'd been planning to preach this, but what great timing that this week the announcement comes out about removing mask mandates and businesses opening to 100% and all that. People have very, very strong opinions on all sides of this issue, right? And I'll tell you the truth, when that came out, my first reaction was, oh, no. Um, because I knew what was going to happen is that people on both sides are going to be like, yeah, you know, either yes, or, you know, we win, or, you know, what's that idiot doing, or whatever, right? And very strong opinions. And that, I just thought, oh, no. You know, and, and within the body of Christ, there's potential for something like that to create divisions. And so, I mean, that's been one example recently where we have to say, okay, how do we go about making sure that we maintain unity in the body of Christ? How do we go about making sure that our goal is to care for one another, which, by the way, is one of the underlying principles behind decisions that we make? How do we make sure that we are loving one another and caring for one another and creating an environment? And that's, by the way, the reason we say we're not going to change anything, at least right now. Hopefully we can, you know, at some time in the near future. But, but at least for now, keep an environment where everybody can feel safe and everybody can be comfortable and come. And, and, and if I have to make a sacrifice in order to do that, then that's what we're called to do. But that's really very applicable to what we see taking place in this passage, that we need to seek oneness within the body of Christ above everything else. Now let's continue on and, and, and read about something else. Not only 
are we to have oneness with one another? But verse 23 through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So one aspect is that communion should draw us closer to one another. But a second one, obviously, from this is the Lord's Supper also should draw us closer to God. There is that element of when we remember the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus, that that creates oneness in our relationship with Him. In fact, it says in verse 23, What I received from the Lord, I also passed along to you. I love that, that reminder, I received from the Lord. Now, not directly, most likely, because this is Paul, and he didn't become a follower of Jesus until post-resurrection. But, but his point is, this was passed on directly from Jesus down through his followers. It was directly from the Lord, this reminder of the importance of this meal that they would have together, the importance of remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. This came directly from Jesus. And then it says, a little phrase here, and I'm just going to read it the way that it's, that it's translated here in uh, the New International Version I'm reading from. It says, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. Now, let me just ask you, when you read that, maybe, you have a, maybe it's phrased differently in the version you're using, but when you read the night he was betrayed... What is the first thing that comes to mind? I, do you have an answer for me? Tell me. What comes to mind? When he was betrayed by Judas, right? That's exact. I agree. That's the first thing that comes to mind. I love that you just jumped up and answered it. That's awesome. That's what comes to mind for me, too. He was betrayed by Judas. But I, I want, I'm not so sure that that's really... The primary thing, or certainly it's not the only thing that he has in mind here, because this word that is translated here as betrayed, it's a Greek word, paradidomi, and it means sometimes to betray, but other times it means to hand over. Let me give you a few examples of that. If you look back to verse 2, when it talks about in this chapter, and it talks about the traditions that were being passed down, that's the same word there. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That word delivered is the same word, paradidomy. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That, that word that is translated as gave him up, same word. And the Old Testament, of course the Old Testament was written, originally most of it was written in Hebrew, but there was a primary translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that Greek speakers used. And so in the Septuagint, in Isaiah 53, which this is our suffering servant passage about that we look back and see how much it applies to Jesus, but Isaiah 53, 6 in the Septuagint says, And the Lord gave him up for our sins. Again, the same phrase there, to give him up. And the same thing in Isaiah 53, verse 12, And he bore the sins of many, and on account of their iniquities he was handed over. So here's, here's my point in all this. The question is this, who is it that's doing the handing over? Who is it that is delivering Jesus for our sins? It's not Judas. I mean, ultimately, yes, Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus and all that. But ultimately, God himself is the one who is handing Jesus over for our sins. 
Now that's significant. If we view it from that perspective, and that adds to this sense of, of, of gratitude and oneness, because if I realize that Jesus was handed over by God's own design, this was God's idea, right? This wasn't some you know, human and, uh, that, that went wrong and didn't do what he should do. And I, you know, yes, there was that element of that, but this was God's plan from the beginning. Why? Because that's how much God loves every single one of us. That he would come up with this idea to say, I know that their, their sin separates, me, separates them from me, which is true. Every single one of us, you, myself, everybody you know, we're all sinners. Our sin separates us from God. And God looked down and said, there's no way that they can do anything about this, right? We cannot perfectly follow the law. We are incapable. We are sinful. And our sin separates us from God. So he came up with the idea that I will send my son as a perfect sacrifice to become this once-for-all sacrifice. At that time, they would sacrifice, you know, a one-year-old animal without defect and all that. Well, he said, I'm going to send the perfect once-for-all sacrifice to pay the price for them. So this was his idea. When Jesus was handed over, Jesus was, was certainly a part of that whole plot from the very beginning and, and went along with it, but this was the Father's plan. God loves you that much. And I would just remind you of that if you haven't yet responded to that love and that extension of, of an offer of forgiveness. Man, this would be a great day to do that. Because we're talking about remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. What a great day to say, yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that my sins have been covered if I'll turn away from them and put my faith in him. And we urge you to take that step today if you haven't already. But once we do and we trust in Jesus and then we come back to the table, then we're reminded every time we see the, the bread that is broken and, and we drink from the cup, it reminds us of the, the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, how good he is to us. That's really what he's getting at when he says to do this in remembrance of me. See, th this, this is a very reverent thing for us to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, there are, as you probably know, different views, different understandings of the presence of Jesus in communion and exactly how all this works. And, and to me, the key phrase is that phrase, do this in remembrance of me. But there are others that, that see it differently. Catholics teach uh, something called transubstantiation, that when the blessing is pronounced over the elements of communion, it literally turns into the body and blood of Jesus. So when you're receiving those elements, you're literally receiving the body and blood of Jesus. Now again, you can read this passage where he says, this is my body and all that, and I understand where you come to that conclusion. I, I think it's the wrong conclusion to come to because it says, do this in remembrance of me, and I think that's the emphasis here. Then you have other groups. Martin Luther started this, and certainly Lutherans would still hold to this, what's called consubstantiation, which means that when the blessing is pronounced over those elements, that the real presence of Jesus is, it says, in and under and with and all that, those elements. It doesn't literally transform from bread to the body of Jesus, but the real presence of Jesus is there. And then you have others, which is where I would land, that would say, no, the really important thing here, the real key here, is that we remember the body and blood of Jesus. That this puts us in a place of, of reflecting back on the fact 
that it was my sin that caused this. And Jesus was handed over by God himself because he loves me that much. And he desires to have relationship with me to that level. So that's, to me, the, the, the important part of, of what's being taught here. But as we come to this and we understand this, we need to approach it with a sense of reverence. We need to approach it with a, with a true sense of worship. And when we don't, that's a big deal. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. See that emphasis there again? Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Here's the third main idea I want to share with you today, and that is the Lord's Supper should cause us to examine our hearts. It should cause us to, to, to have a time of reflection and examination and to see where we are. Because obviously eating in an unworthy manner with hearts that haven't been examined is a big deal. It says that some of you have, are, have become sick and some, it says, have fallen asleep. It means they died. This, this is a big deal. So we see that there is this judgment from God that has come upon the church because they are approaching this in an unworthy manner. Now keep in mind that this is God's judgment on believers. These, these are believers here in the church that, that have kind of gotten off track. But the purpose of it, look at verse 32. If you still have your Bible open there, verse 32 says that the purpose of that is that God would restore them so that they would not come under this final judgment with the rest of the world. So he's talking about believers here. It's restorative. Just as a parent and punishing or disciplining a child, the goal is not just to inflict pain. The goal is to, to correct behavior and to restore to the way things should be. That's what God is doing for us. And, and I want you to think about why, you know, we, we might say, why is this such a, a big, big deal that you know, there was lack of unity in the church and that some were going ahead and eating without others and others were being left out and all that. It's such a big deal because think about how contrary this runs to what the whole purpose of, of communion is in the first place. The whole point is that we remember Jesus who became a sacrifice for us, who put the needs of others ahead of his own, who was willing to say, I'm willing to go so far as to give up my own life as a sacrifice for you. And you can't even wait to eat your meal and include other people that need to be included in that. I mean, you see where that would be such a slap in the face to God at a time where they're remembering Jesus and what he had done. That's the whole reason that he came was to do away with this sin. And now it's being brought back into this remembrance. And so it was really highly offensive to him. So the solution then, what's the solution? Verse 28 says everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. When we come to the table, we, we should 
examine our hearts. And the first place we should begin is by examining our relationship with other believers. We, we should ask the question, is there something that is not right in my relationship with another believer? And if so, how do I go about making it right? Because I'll tell you this, that, that the father is not pleased when his children try to come to the table and are not right with one another. That's what we see here. Those of you that have kids understand this, right? We, we have two girls, both of them are grown now, they're, they're both away at college, but um, you know, especially when they were younger, they were just at each other's throats all the time, it seemed like. Anybody relate to that? It's like, what is going on here? They're just constantly picking at each other, you know, and it just happened all the time. And then as they got older, they, they really have become best friends, but they still sometimes are just all over each other. And at those moments, as a parent, when your, child's are, when you're, when your kids, your children are just at each other's throats, are you feeling the warm, fuzzy feelings towards your kids. Now you still love your kids, right? They're still your kids and we love them and they love us in spite of our faults that, that we have toward one another. But I'm going to tell you right now, you're probably not overwhelmed with warm fuzzies towards your kids when that's happening, right? Did I say that diplomatically enough there? When we come to the table and, and it's, it's dinner time and, you know, God's to be a part of this whole process and we're together and yet we're, you know, things aren't right. It's a big deal toward God. And so we need to, to seek to make things right. I, I wonder if, and I, you know, there's no way to really know this, but I, I wonder if part of what had happened was that they kind of forgot what the, what the main idea here was. You know, sometimes you just do the same thing. They, these, are, these are weekly meetings. I wonder if they just lost focus a little bit. I wonder if they allowed the influence of the world and influence of society and how everybody else did things to kind of infiltrate into the church and they just kind of lost sight of what they were supposed to be doing and how important it was. Um, well, we're told, verse 26, the point of this is that when we do this, that we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So every time we come together, we're, we're examining ourselves, we're proclaiming His death, we're, we're, we're saying this is what Jesus has done until the fact that He comes back again. And so we need to have heart preparation. That's why you know, when we celebrate communion together corporately, there's a time where we can just you know, kind of get our hearts right and make sure that, that we're uh, focused. We're not going to be perfect, but I'm going to tell you this. I mean, let me just, a little practical thing here. If there's something, if you're a follower of Christ, but there's something in your relationship with God that, that you, if you're being really honest, you just know that it's not right and you're unwilling to make it right or you're unwilling to truly repent of that eternal way, it's probably not a good idea to come to the Lord's table. Now, I'm not talking about being perfect, okay? Please hear me. We would never be able to receive communion if that were the case. But I'm talking about if there are things that, that genuinely in our lives we're like, I am just in rebellion against God and I, I know it if I'm being honest, um, we probably should stay away. You know, we come with confession. We come with a sincere desire to say, God, I know I'm not perfect, and I'm thankful that, that your blood covers my sins because I desperately need that. We all do. Uh, but, but we come to the table with hearts that are full. Now, you, you might read a passage like this, and this could be a little scary, right? Like, man, God's judgment was, was a big deal on the church at this time. And that's true. But I also would remind you today that communion is attended 
to be something not just that is, that is you know, overwhelming and scary, but it's intended to be something that is an incredible joy for us. And to be able to come to the Lord's table is something that uh, you know, there's a great privilege for every one of us. And we should do so um, just really making the most of that opportunity to worship together as we do that. So we're going to do that today. We're, we're going to try best we can to really come to the table together. Now you're going to stay there, but I'm going to move over here because you know, we're talking today about the fact that the way this took place in the early church is that they, they actually sat down for a meal together. And so I just want you to envision or imagine that that's what we are doing together today. You know, we're, we're, we're sitting down together at the table and we're having a meal together. And we're able to share in that fellowship. And of course, we are prioritizing unity in the body of Christ. We are making sure that everybody knows that they are invited and everybody has a seat at the table. And so we've enjoyed a meal together and, you know, maybe talked about this, those things that are going on in our lives and just shared some good fellowship, which is always a wonderful thing. Uh, going back to the illustration, I, I get that it's a little dangerous to, um, to make God, to, to use earthly illustrations of parents and kids and to play. I, I know it's not all the same, but I do think there's some similarities there. One of the other things that I know as a parent is that there's not much that brings me greater joy than when I see my kids just enjoying being together. You know, and especially when they're they're sharing together and there's there's a, a spiritual component to that and they're loving each other. And it's like, man, that's awesome. You know, I, I love that. And so I think God is is very well pleased when we come together and we just share fellowship together. So we've had a meal together. And it's time to to bring in this aspect of remembering the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus. And so, as we said a moment ago, we do so um, with taking a time to prepare our hearts. And we're going to do that right now. I just want to ask you to take a moment and just ask the question, is there something that's not right with another person? Is there something that's not right in my own relationship with God? And let's just have a time of, of confession and a time of prayer. And let's just get our hearts right, and then I'll lead us through receiving the elements. 